Hi, my name is Father Peter Musset, and you're listening to uh, my companion, Dr. Scott Powell, as we reflect upon the scriptures in a podcast called The Word on the Hill with the Linky Guys. We're so thankful that you've returned to be with us yet again this week. I don't know where to go from here. You really, you really upended our usual opening. I don't even know. I, no, I, it's good. I just came, it came from something. Like I feel like it's from something that I just said all those things. It was a little NPR-ish. It was a little bit uh, canned opening. You know, what I it, liked it though. You know, it feels it was. It felt a little bit like, um, like previously on. Oh yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, that was the voice. Right. You just yeah, you just nailed it. It was like previously on Lost. You guys, um, I haven't seen you guys in a while. It's been a month. Um, I love you guys. It's been a while, yeah. We haven't been together for the podcast in some time. Yeah, and so it's a, it's a real pleasure to be with you. I'm so thankful that God has given us to you. Given you to us. Strike that. Reverse it. That's kind really of both. Wonka time. It's kind yeah. of both. Yeah. So we got some graces to, to, to explore within the word of God. And yeah. um, and I I just came back from uh, Holy Transfiguration Monastery. I asked them all to pray for you last week. Hey, it worked. I didn't say where you were in case they wanted to yeah. come and get you. But. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a Byzantine monastery in Northern California, a mm. few hours outside of, uh, north of, northeast of San Francisco. And... Um, it's pretty it was a really holy place it was so funny i didn't realize how tired i was uh-huh. but i literally for three nights slept 12 hours did you really i was going to well because it's holy also it was macaroni. so dark that when the sun <laughs> went down it was like oh because there is it's in the middle of nowhere yeah and and like the uh-huh. the buildings weren't really heated you could turn on heat in a room if you wanted it heated but like it wow. was just it was like cold and rainy and dark that and sounds magical it was actually really special for my melancholic heart um yeah we're in the uh, Second. See, this is where I have to pull it up. It's the first it's a Sunday se- of Ordinary Time that we've had in a while, but it's not the first it, Sunday of Ordinary Time. It's, it's the, the second, second Sunday. Sunday of Ordinary Time. Because the first, well, okay. This first is, Sunday of, is as John the Baptist is the baptizer. Now, I learned something really cool from these Eastern Catholics, yep. okay? Do you know what the color for the Holy Spirit is? Well, the, my my knee jerk reaction wants to say white because I think of doves, or right. orange because I think of fires, or blue blue because, because I of think water. of the ruah. It's green. Why? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you had some beautiful explanation that you were setting. You were, but uh, no, but but know. listen to this. They're like they're like <clears> we gosh. we don't because he were grows like, things. They were like in the in the Roman Church you have a liturgical color of green, yes. and we they were like we don't use that, whereas. We um, but but it's the it, but at the ordinary time is the, is the period of time for the Holy Spirit, and so it's actually weirdly like appropriate for us to have the vestments okay. that are green. Green. You, you were yeah. like shaking your head in such a way that I was going to go stilted until you acknowledged. I was singing a song in my head. Oh, so from uh, if you're familiar with Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, nope. which is a children's. I mean, I, I am you've familiar. Heard of it. Yeah, I just never took it. Well, there's a song that is sung about the the colors of the liturgical year, and I just and I, I'm not going to sing the song for you. But Come I remember, on, I want no, you to I'm do not going to do it. Sue it. No, I'm not going to do it. But they there's a line that says the green is for the growing season, and that's actually always really resonated with me as far as the ordinary time. Right, green. It's when we're growing. Like that's just the time of growth and just kind of going along. So I've always thought of it that way. But the Holy Spirit is green is interesting because he grows. I mean, he's what causes the life of grace to grow in our heart. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a lot there. Yeah, absolutely. And and but that also came up in that conversation that I had that lasted uh, a grand total of like 
two minutes, which we've actually talked about it longer on this podcast than I actually had. The oh, original the actually conversation. original conversation. Yeah. Sorry, that's <laughs> what I do. I elongate things. It's just what happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I make a quick announcement before we jump yeah. in? Um, <clears throat> we are, I would like to cordially invite all of our listeners to an event that we're hosting here at the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought in Boulder. Uh, coming up next Thursday, so January 21st, we're doing an online conversation, a dialogue with uh, Dr. Robert George and Dr. Cornell West, who I think are two of the most important academic minds in the world today. Very, very different ends of the ideological and political aisles, but they, they both share a faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to have a conversation online called Is Civil Discourse Dead? Um, and there's a lot there. So, uh, But if you're interested, I would like to invite you. Um, you can go to the thomascenter.org website and you can register on Zoom and it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's something that we're doing here. I want uh, you guys to know about it and I would like to invite you to it. And um, when you attend, uh, th- thankfully, we've been able to arrange it this year that drinks are free. <laughs> Because <laughs> you're well, we're not paying for them. Because they'll on, have to pay for yeah, yeah. That's on Zoom, you know. Yeah. Well, they should yeah. buy a drink and sit <laughs> they, down and have their own. They can have a cordial. Provide your own darn drink. Since you actually invited them, I cordially, cordially invited, invited them. them. Okay, this is degenerating. <laughs> it's the second Sunday. Don't, do not call me a degenerate. Ah. Uh, it's the second Sunday of Ordinary Time, and our first reading this week, Father Peter, is coming from First Samuel, one of my favorite books. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3b, and then jumping to 10, and then 19. All cobbled is together. It, is it 3b through 10, and then 19? 3b through 10, and then 19. Because yeah. I just started at 3, and then went through 19, and I was like, because I just... Oh, no. And then I was... No, no. Because I was just studying. I didn't want to waste my... I didn't want to waste a dash, or a comma. Um... You never waste a comma. Okay, I'm so of that opinion. Our uh, our second reading is the responsorial psalm, verse <laughs> uh, f- uh, forty, uh, Psalm forty eight a comma nine a. Oh no, that's, that's the response. that's the response itself. Okay, the psalm is forty mm. verse two mm. comma four mm. comma seven dash ten. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's what it is. All right, our second reading is coming from First Corinthians chapter six verse thirteen c to 15a and then 17 <laughs> through 20 and I'll there's a there's a very easy explanation to why yeah, we yeah, jump around a lot yeah I saw that one I was like yeah. I was like well I was like as a preacher it kind of makes sense it makes a lot of it. sense although it's hard to unpack it without a little bit of the context but right. we can talk about it in a general sense our gospel <clears throat> is from the gospel of Johannes mm. uh, chapter one uh, three number five dash number four number two. I feel like that would not accurately voice dictate to your phone what you're trying to say. <laughs> that's why I know I, enough about it. That's why I did it. That. It's just because it's 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 <laughs> ironic that I would. And you knew it would kill me. There's it, something it, about the way that my brain functions that I just can't stand it. And it's like weirdly disorderly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm, well. Okay. First Samuel. Um, yeah. Um, Okay, Eli and Phineas and Ferb, right? (laughs) I love Phineas and Ferb. Have you ever actually watched Phineas and Ferb? Phineas and Ferb is phenomenal cartoon life. that is some good writing. Okay, anyway, we can talk about Phineas and Ferb, or the the priest sons of Eli. Eli Eli has a family of priests. Eli is a priest, and his two sons are priests. But if you read contextually in this section of 1 Samuel, what you quickly find out is that they... um, 
I don't I don't want to use the word unfaithful because I don't really know about their faithfulness, but they're not portrayed in a very good light. They are portrayed as careerists. They're portrayed as kind of the kind of priests who kind of clock in, clock out. It's it's it, Samuel himself is kind of posed as the juxtaposition to their idea of the way that they live out their faith life, right? Uh, Eli is constantly um, shown in the text in a seated, seated position, as opposed to Samuel, who is always standing in attention, actually in the position of reverence in the ancient world before God. Um, Eli is shown as lazy, as uh, not a good listener, as not very discerning, and his priests will, or his sons rather, will actually be the reason that the Ark of the Covenant is stolen from Israel soon after this. So they're not great folks. Um, and I think the part of what um, the reason I bring all that up is because you asked me. But the other thing that I think is important about that is that um, so if there's if there's a theme to the first reading, it's that <laughs> listening to the voice of the Lord is really hard. It's really hard to discern what God is saying, even if you are the holiest person of your time, as Samuel seems to be or like me or you are. Right. It's really and there's something about you know, kind of reading through this passage, there was something almost heartening about that. Just the the solidarity of feeling like, yeah, you know what? Even under the, the best circumstances, it's really hard to always understand what God is saying. And we can hear his voice. Even when we hear his voice, though, sometimes it's hard to understand what that, what that means. And mm. what do we do with that? The other thing that I find striking is that even though I've just sort of berated Eli and his sons, God so uses— does the Lord. So does So does the Lord. But God still uses Eli to teach Samuel about discerning his voice. And that's the other thing that I think is an important takeaway from this, that God can use whoever he wants to, even a a rather corrupt and ill-attentive priest, to actually teach us about discernment and understanding God's voice. So that's not contemporary at all. (laughs) Yes. With no offered with no comment. Um, (laughs) But, but there is, so so just again, to unpack just a teeny bit of the story, because I I really do love the story. So what this is coming kind of hot on the heels of is the story of Hannah, uh, Samuel's mom, who was this holy woman, pretty beat up by life, you know, had a, a rough marriage and heartbreak in her life. Uh, She miraculously has this son named Samuel, who she prayed to God so fervently for. And in response to this probably years and years long prayer of God's faithfulness to her, she turns around and says, okay, now I'm giving him back to you. And so if you remember the story, she takes little Eli, little baby Eli, as soon as he was weaned, I think, and she gives him, I'm sorry, not baby Eli, baby Samuel, sorry. And gives him over to Eli the priest so he can grow up in the presence of God at the tabernacle. Um, Which as a mom who's been praying for the gift of a child and then to immediately turn around and say, all right, God, he's yours. I'm giving him back. That's there's so much there. But what we learn from the story is that opposed to Eli, who's always kind of sitting down on the job is the best way to say it. Samuel has learned and the tradition of the church, the Jewish tradition before us, but also this Hannah is even... uh, highlighted in the catechism of the Catholic Church as the one who taught Samuel, more than the priest did, how to stand before the presence of the Lord, how to praise God, how to give himself to God in worship. And so he has been taught this, but what we see in this scene as now he's beginning to grow up is that Samuel still has to uh, understand the other side of that. So the life of prayer, there's two parts, right? There's presenting ourselves before God, but then there's also the act of listening, of hearing God. And that's what Samuel still has yet to learn. So we find out that Samuel, I think this is really beautiful. It says he's sleeping in the temple of the Lord. And actually in the Hebrew, it points out he was sleeping in a place called the holy place. 
And so if you remember what the tabernacle looked like, this is kind of just in the time uh, before there was a temple, but it was it was the tent of meeting, right? The Ark of the Covenant was in there, but it was, there's obviously some kind of architecture around it, right? There's pillars and there's some, there's a little bit of building. It's not a temple, but it's a little more, per- excuse me, more permanent. And so there's the, there's three sections, right? So there's the outer court where people could gather for prayer. There's the inner court. And then within the inner court, it's divided into two sections, right? So inside is the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwells. And outside of the Holy of Holies is what's called the holy place where there's three things. There's the golden lampstand, right? Right. And the, the, the bread of presence. The table of showbread. Yeah, exactly. The bread of presence and the table of incense. So this is where Zechariah was when he offered the incense to God, right? So that's where apparently Samuel sleeps. Hold on, didn't, wouldn't you take incense from the table of the incense and go into the Holy of Holies? No, you didn't go into the Holy of Holies with it. You would offer the incense right outside of it, in the holy place. Right. Did anybody ever go into the Holy of Holies? The high priest was allowed to go once in the year on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. He could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And remember, that was where— Zechariah? He Did... was not a high priest. Oh, only the high priest could go so into the Holy of Holies, I always and he could only Zechariah go into was the high priest, and he went into the Holy of Holies, and then he wanted to come out. And no, that... we know for a fact he wasn't a high priest because number one, he lives in the hill country of Judea; he doesn't live at the temple. And it says he was of the division of Abijah, so it actually tells us in Luke what division of Levitical priest he was. Got it. So yeah, he was just he was a workaday priest, right? Basically, a faithful yeah. one. Um, but that's where Eli is, and it's traditional believes that he was sleeping there basically to make sure that the lampstand stayed lit. And so it, it it just, it's not to get into too much detail, but it's just this beautiful image of the attentiveness that Samuel has to the presence of God. So he's sleeping so there. He's sleeping there. Yeah. Eli is, who knows where Eli is? Eli is asleep in his bed. And that's Samuel not, is being attentive, keeping the lights lit. Oh, that's, and that's not normal. Not terribly. Not, I mean, not that I know, not that I'm aware of. I don't know of any other precedent, but, right. but it's, there's a beauty to it. Right. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, I hope it's okay to share this, but um, my wife, Annie. So when she was kind of first coming back to, to a reawaken of, of the Catholic faith, when she was at the University of Illinois as a student there, she lived in a dorm that was actually attached to the Catholic church, to the Newman Center. And she would, and because her dorm was attached to the chapel, she would just be in the chapel at all hours of the night in front of the, the tabernacle. And she would regularly fall asleep there and just sleep in front of the tabernacle as she was at this point in her faith, just digging in and asking God and trying to figure out what on earth this all meant. And I, I mean, she, she talked about that as this formative moment of her faith. She was like, I would just, in the middle of the night, I could walk into the chapel, I could sit before the tabernacle and just be there and be attentive to that and try to work this out. So I always, I have this very distinct image in my mind of Samuel and his attentiveness to this, which is really beautiful. And so that, that's the, the scene. And, and I think it's important because... Samuel is shown to be a person who wants to discern God's will, who wants to hear God's voice, who knows how to be attentive and to stand before him. And yet it's still really hard to know God's voice. And so he hears this voice saying, um, Samuel, Samuel. And he thinks, so it also shows us that this holy, holy man does not recognize God's voice because it's not always self-evident, right? God doesn't always, it's not always abundantly clear. We have to actually work to understand God's voice. And I don't think we always like that. We want it to just be obvious and self-evident and easy, right? But Samuel, who's literally in the presence of God, hears a voice and he's like, oh, Eli must have woken up and needs another Long Island iced tea or something, right? So he goes (laughs) in and he's like, you you call me? Right. He's like, no, I didn't call you. Go back, you know, I want to go back to bed. And so he's like, all right, whatever. And then it happens again. He's like, Eli, what what are you doing? You call me? And he's like, go back to bed. 
And then the third time, because good things always come in threes in the Bible. It was really funny. <laughs> it was before you get there. Uh -oh. I, I was talking to a, a focus missionary, and uh, he was talking about how his uh, his particular priest um, uh, in Kansas uh, would call him at three in the morning oh, no. and just tell him an idea and be like, okay, that's all. And then just like hang up, dude. Really? Yeah. Carrie Will Coolidge. Father Carrie Will Coolidge. That's kind of beautiful like though, the isn't best. it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a certain kind of relationship you have to have with your, your <laughs> with parishioners. Your, but it just that. tells you, I love him. He's such a good priest, but like, I just, it's, but even, it's a lot. Coolidge, is, but there's an attentiveness to that. Right. And I want to share this because I need to be attentive to it in this moment. There's something really beautiful to that. Right. If like somebody that. calls me in the at three in the morning, I'm going to say, here, I am Lord. <laughs> it's going to be me. It's like, be Did you me. call? Did you, Did you just text me? <laughs> no, it's the Lord. Go back to sleep. It's the Lord. Let's go back to sleep. So yeah, on the third time, Eli begins to kind of wake up. And again, it shows the, the nuance of human beings. Even this kind of, you know, sitting down in the job priest begins to say, oh, there's something happening here. And there is a certain attentiveness, and he says, okay, here's what you should do. Go back. If you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, which is one of the greatest pieces of teaching and advice that's ever been given in the scriptures, right? Right. If you hear a voice that might be the Lord's, here's what you say. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening, which is one of the themes that runs through the rest of the readings, right? Yep. Unfortunately, what we don't get in the rest of this reading, as you well know, is that, I mean, can you imagine breakfast the next day? <laughs> when Samuel comes in, he's like, so did the Lord speak to you again? He's like, oh, yeah. Do he, we not get that in this reading? No, we don't. Oh, my gosh. Because He told me he's going to destroy your family and your children because they're and, going to allow the Ark of the Covenant to be stolen. Yeah, Can says, you pass the orange juice? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, and he says, um, and, he, and, and Eli says to him, he says, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from yeah. me of all that he told you. Yeah. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Yeah. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That's what Eli said, right? Yeah. Which again... Is actually a weirdly faithful response. It is because Eli's not all bad. He's lazy and he's not what he should be. And he didn't raise his sons to do a very good job because they're going to be the cause of the downfall. But there, there's, he's a mixed, he's like all of us. I mean, I see myself probably more than an Eli than anybody else because we're just mixed bags. Right. And there's moments where like, oh, I can be attentive right now. And there's moments where we're lazy and there's moments where, you know, we're just constantly up and down. He's not all bad. And right. I actually, I love right. the nuance of Eli because you want to write him off as kind of a, you know, kind of the bad guy of the story, but he's not. He's right. complicated. Yep. But he also teaches Samuel the most important thing that he probably ever learned. Well, one of the most important things. The two kind of twin pillars are his mother, who taught him how to stand before the Lord, and Eli, then, who taught him how to listen to the Lord. Mm. Which is the, that, that's, I, I love this story. I think it's really beautiful. Yep. Yeah, so that's all I got. That's, uh, th that's all I had, too. <laughs> Cool. whatever you had <laughs> <laughs> i really I, I mean i love that story yeah it, it, it it's just really it's actually a really special story i mean it, it, it's it's it, at its core it's like saying you gotta you can learn how to hear the voice of the lord yes and it's hard and again if there's a moral to this story it's not easy even if you're Samuel, who's a great, holy, saintly figure well, in the bible but uh, this is the thing is that Samuel should have picked up a cue because 
the very first thing the Lord, the prophetic message that he had to, to have him go and tell was to say, hey, yeah. you're condemned, bro. Yeah, that's rough. I mean, like. That's a tough break. And, and he's just little. He doesn't even know what the voice of the Lord is Yeah, we yet. don't know how old he is, but he's, he's, he's young. He's he, a kid. He's little yeah. yet still, like in, in his prophecy. I mean, he could be big, but like. Yeah, right. yes. Uh, right. Very, it's, that's it's, very important. It's like, welcome to the inauguration. Uh, and he's and the Lord's like, okay, you're faithful. He's like, welcome to your mission. This is also where in a lot of ways, and I don't think I'm off base by saying both Hannah and Samuel are an incredible typological image of Mary and Jesus. Hannah is actually compared oh. to being sort of the Mary of the Old Testament. She actually sings a hymn after Samuel is born that is clearly where Mary is picking up the Magnificat prayer from. It echoes the Mag- or the Magnificat echoes her prayer. Right, all the divine reversals. Yes, exactly. And she teaches her son how to stand before God, which the Catechism says that is where Jesus learned how to do that from the Blessed Mother, Joseph, of course, too. But then it's young Jesus, the unlikely of saviors, born in humility as the, the young child, and who will then call out the mighty from their thrones and the cast down, you know, the priesthood and all the other stuff. So there, there's a there's an interesting typology of Hannah and Samuel to what Mary and Jesus will do and become. Which, when we get to the gospel, I'm going to show you how it actually make how it's implied already through the Gospel of John. All right, I'm, I look forward to hearing. I know, isn't it? Are you intrigued by I'm what intrigued. I'm going to say? I am so intrigued by structures. Mm. And if somebody can give me insight into structures, then what happens is is that we we form our intuition through through um, our daily life, our experience, our our, our education. Mm. And if if you can point out a structure, oftentimes what you, what it allows you to do is to um, have a scaffolding where you can put your ideas that are happening inside of you. And yeah, and yeah, so absolutely. so so if there's a if there's clarity around structure, you can interpret and use the rest of your life experience to enter into things better. Yeah, absolutely. That was a very very abstract series of statements that I just said. What? Uh, not to me. Okay, that's good. No, I think it was good. I mean, that, this is how the liturgy actually works. This is why the litur- liturgy is structural in the way that it is, to actually bring what you just said to life. Dude, this I have to tell you, having spent a week um, doing the, the liturgy of John Chrysostom, and we actually did a li- the liturgy of St. Um, Basil. Oh. Um, I don't know that I've ever Yeah. Yeah, it's very similar to Chris- the, yeah, the liturgy Chrysostom. of John. Yeah, the, the divine liturgy. And, um, and I love the Novus Ordo. Can I tell you? <laughs> I grew up going to I grew I grew up going to the extraordinary form, and um, we used to call it the Tridentine Mass, and um, it's it's good. But I have to tell you, I love I love the Nova. I, I'm like I feel like sometimes like a, a voice crying out in the wilderness, saying yeah. the Novus Ordo is is a, a beautiful gift, and and understanding the extraordinary form, you can enter into some of the things that are implied in the Novus Ordo. Yes. Um, yes. Well, absolutely. That, that maybe were unfolded in a larger way, but yeah. but but we can enter in, and I love the the mm. Uh, the mm. the work of liturgy in the Novus Ordo way better than the silence of the um uh, the silence of the uh, extraordinary form. I, it's not what you're saying, but I I, I remember oh, the oh, which leads me to say that 
of the, the structure. S- the liturgy, structures yeah. of the Novus Order are beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, they're, they're implied, and they actually are. They have connection to the divine liturgy of Chrysostom and with extraordinary sure. form. And but yeah, I just I just love it all. It's but but I find that it's very rational. I mean, it's very very clear and structured in it a is Roman way. Cl- it, it's a very Western way of doing something, which is right. I mean, that's what it's trying to do. Right, and I'm yeah. Western, and I totally dig it. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, it is a gift. It right. actually is a gift. And there's a gift that the church actually gives us a diversity in a like a, a real genuine diversity in liturgical worship. Right. There is a diver- I remember going to the first my first divine liturgy at a business, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And I'd never I never been able to really fully appreciate the extraordinary form, the Tridentine. Mm. And then I went to the divine liturgy as a as a, at a Byzantine church and I was like, "Oh, I get now what those other friends of mine were saying they experienced in the extraordinary form. I'm actually feeling it here. Right. And I get, I, I don't feel it there as, I mean, it's, it's the liturgy is the liturgy. Yeah. But I was like, I see what they're saying now because of this particular, and I'm Slavic. I got Russian Polish roots. So that's where, I, that's where my heart is. Do you know, I had this weird desire of um, having the extraordinary form uh, translated into the vernacular. I actually wish I could celebrate the extraordinary form not in Latin. So we have the Novus Ordo that is said oftentimes in Latin, but we don't have the extraordinary form in English? Correct. Okay. I had that reversed in my head. I just I just am like cuz I love I love the I love the word. I love mm. I love a word being spoken in mm. a, in a way that's actually mm a part and experience. Because mm. when I was doing the D- Divine Liturgy, mm. it was in English. Right, 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 right. And it was vernacular, and I loved it. Oh, you didn't it. do it in Russian? Were you even really doing it? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just, <laughs> okay. Just the, People get very angry about liturgical matters. You know, so I'm bracing myself for the angry well, well, onslaught of being Well, if, if you guys are angry about <laughs> anything that kidding. we're saying, guess what? It's it's diverse, and we get to actually do all of these things, yes. and and God has a plan for all of it, and so yes. I just get it in like every once in a while, I just feel like a, a, like like Novus Ordo is really good, and I grew up doing the extraordinary form, and yeah. and I'm like deeply versed in it, and you're formed in it. I'm formed in it, and and I still actually prefer it this way, and n- not for anything. But and you know what? You're allowed to. Right. Exactly. That's the pre- beauty of and true you, diversity. Right. And if you prefer cool. these others, it's cool. Yeah. That actually, um, believe it or not, I have a segue for Psalm 40 with that. What? Um, so Psalm 40, the, the quick what you need to know about Psalm 40 is believed to be, it's, it's believed to be a Psalm of David. Yeah. Um, a kingly, a royal Psalm of David. So written probably in the time of his kingship. And <clears throat> we don't actually get it here. So it's, it's basically a prayer for help when there's distress, when you're in trouble, when there's problems, right. um, which <laughs> I don't know why that fits today, but it, it's a prayer, you know, to God to help us in a time of distress. But what it points out, what we actually don't get, you get it. it this is actually a, a very long Psalm. So I think it's in verse, I don't know, like 12 and following. It talks about the troubles that are surrounding King David are actually due to his own sin. Mm. So sometimes our sin or the collective sin around us or just sin brings us, not sometimes, always. Sin leads to distress. Sin, brokenness leads to sin. Sin leads to more brokenness. That's the cycle. That's how it works. The only way it's broken is when we cry out to God to help us, right? Which is interesting because that's um, that's like Samuel in the temple, oh. who's then prophesying to Eli, <laughs> saying that the, the brokenness <laughs> yeah. is going to get brokenness. <laughs> yeah. 
He, that is exactly what he says. The brokenness will beget more brokenness, which is what God uses to come in and bring redemption. Right. Which, yeah. It's calling a spade a spade. It's calling a spade a spade, which we have to do. Um, yeah, there's so much more that they could be said about that, but yeah. I, I can see that lit you up. Um, yeah, in a, in a bigger sense, in a cultural sense, in a, you know, yeah. our society, uh, our culture of death is reaping what we have sown for a long time. <sighs> and, and I think, uh, not to get on a soapbox, because there's lots more that we could say, I also think the church... In, in Hollywood, they call it an apple box, actually, so... <laughs> I'll take the apple box. <laughs> but I also think the church is reaping what she has sown in not being attentive to the work of the new evangelization, which has been being called for for, what, 50, 40 years now? Mm. And we have not been attentive to the work of the new evangelization. And so people who are Catholics and who have been baptized actually don't know the faith and are twisting the faith. And we have a world that is utterly confused on what the faith even is. And now we live in a post-Christian world where it's up to us to decide— are we going to transform our diocese and our parishes into evangelistic missionary outreaches? Or are we going to keep on doing things the way that we've always done them? That's that's the reckoning that I think we're facing right now in a lot of ways, which does, I think, tie back to what David is praying. I mean, this is, in a certain sense, the story of Israel from the beginning. So right. there's nothing new under the sun here. Right. But the reason what you said sort of sparked something in me is that what does David say? And I, I'm, I'm taking for granted this is the Psalm of David. You know, that's what the liturgy and the tradition tells us. But it talks about, I actually want to read this. He says, because we get part of this and then we skip the, what was my favorite part. The meaty. He said, well, it's all meaty. It's just what, it was what struck me. Yep. Um, this is verse six. Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, uh, but my ears you have pierced. So this, this is um, citing, David citing what is said in First Samuel that, God desires obedience and mercy, not just sacrifice. I don't just want burnt offerings. I don't want you just to clock in, clock out. I want your hearts. I want your obedience. I want you to be my possessions. God desires that more than he desires sacrifice and burnt offerings and stuff. Uh, Burnt offerings and sin offerings you didn't require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It's exactly the words of Samuel. It is written about me in your scroll. I I desire to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. And I was sitting with this line. Again, we skip it in liturgy. It is written about me in the scroll. And I started to dig into that because commentators are very confused on what David means here. If Again, if this is David, it is written about me in thy scroll. So some people think that he's referring to some ancient prophecies in the Old Testament about the king of Israel, maybe something in Deuteronomy 17. I'm not sure, but I tend to think. So remember, Deuteronomy actually told there was a prescription that said every king that would eventually come forth in Israel was required, which most of them we don't think did. But every king was supposed to take the book of Deuteronomy and write it down, copy it in his own handwriting, and keep that handwritten copy of Deuteronomy next to his throne at all times because it's about him. And I think what David is saying is, I understood, I saw myself in the scriptures. And when I was writing those words, when I saw the way that you've worked through history, I saw myself, I reckon, what does he say? I saw that it was written about me in your scroll. Not in the sense of like, oh, it's all about me, but in the sense that, so the reason this kind of sparked my attention, I'm preparing for a new course I'm teaching this, well, it's, an old, it's a course I've taught, Introduction to the Bible, but I sent my students, um, I asked them to read before the first day of class, St. Athanasius's uh, Life of Anthony. Did you yeah. ever read that? Oh, Very yeah, ancient absolutely. writing. Yeah, yeah. 
And um, the thing that I love about the, the life of Anthony and the reason I wanted to start class this way is that the story of the life of Anthony, it comes from the third century, right? This very early monk who basically, as the story goes, Anthony shows up at mass one day. He hears Matthew being being proclaimed, that sell all you have and give to the poor. And his assumption is, oh my gosh, that is speaking direct, the liturgy, well, God's word praying, is speaking directly to me. He was already praying about this before exactly he went right. into the church and he right. just kind of wandered into church. He did. He's <laughs> like, yeah, that's what it says. I just kind of showed up and this was being proclaimed. And I said, that's for me. So he went out, sold everything he had, gave it to the poor, went back to mass. And it was like a couple lines later. I don't know how long this reading took, but you know, probably another day, <laughs> but I have no anxiety. And so he's like, so I went and gave all that away too. But the reason I had my class read that to begin is that the ancient perennial fundamental understanding of the liturgy is number one, the place of the sacred scriptures is first and foremost primarily in the liturgy. And the reason that it's there is because we're meant as a believing community to receive God's word given to us. And it tells us so much about the pedagogy of the reception of the scriptures in the early church that the life of Anthony was held up as this model for how Christians are supposed to receive the scriptures. They speak to us. Why? How? Because they're structural, because there is a design, because the church has given us a liturgy and a structure, a structure through which we've understood for thousands of years that, hey, this is a really good way to be able to discern and hear the very difficult to hear voice of God that's trying to speak into our lives. And Anthony is this great example of it actually working. That's the model. That's what it's supposed to look like. And I was reminded because that's basically what David says. Right. As I was reflecting on this, as I was praying, I saw myself there. And that led me to repentance. And that led me to write this and turn back to you. That we actually, the proper reception of the scriptures and the voice of God in our lives is first and foremost in the liturgy. So that we can then go and do something about it. Oh, does that make sense? Yeah. But it, it's, uh, yeah, that's that's all I got. I mean, we've all had that moment. We've all Hopefully. had that, you know, that moment where it's like something you just <clears throat> sit and you, the, the, the scriptures are being read and it zings you. It's almost like, <laughs> it almost like, it like pierces yeah. through bone and marrow and yeah. goes to the substance of our being. Right. Right. Or, or like you're there and the priest is preaching and you're like, oh my goodness, you feel like there's a spotlight on you. Yeah. And, uh, and that's like, a, it's just beautiful. I love it when that happens. Which and gets if we've us... never experienced that, it's important to actually pray for that. Right. And to know with confidence that there is, uh, that is the, the liturgy's function. It shouldn't be lost, by the way, that when Samuel is learning to discern God's voice, where is it? It's in a liturgical setting. It's in the tabernacle. He is in the place of the liturgy. So, I mean, yeah. the church is saying something to us. Yeah. If I find somebody in the tabernacle, I'm going to be like, <laughs> not in the tabernacle. I'm like, but... you're t- you're really small. How did you, did you get the honey? I shrunk the kids beam. <laughs> that's, a, that's a weird image. <laughs> I mean, except for Jesus. You and... need to dress up as Rick Moranis and come scurrying into the sanctuary. And I'll get a bowl of Cheerios out. Or the incredible shrinking woman, a tomato. Dude, I'm still traumatized by the incredible shrinking woman when she ends up in the sink and there's the garbage disposal and she's in there. That's messed me up for a life. That's that's a reasonable. If you're going to be messed up by something, that's reasonable. <laughs> I, I've, We're all messed up by something. We are all that messed up by something. That one's at least logical. And for uh, some of us, it's First Corinthians that messed us up. <laughs> yeah, Ma- namely the Corinthians. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was, strike that. Reverse it. I, <clears throat> well, that's true. I'm feeling Wonka style today, man. Yeah, you are. 
I think uh, I, I think I think I'm mad at um at uh, G.K. Chesterton because he like flips everything on its head. But the really the truth is is that I just wish that I was G.K. Chesterton because uh, I flip things on its head. Uh, yes. See what I'm saying? It, we're yeah. all we all wish we were G.K. Chesterton, but we're just Eli. <laughs> that's, that's I'll flip you, flip you for real. Okay. Um. So First Corinthians. Here, how do we do this? Uh. Th- th- there's. There's the weeds that I don't want to get into, and then there's the the pretty easy takeaway. No, I'm not. I'm not going to get, get into the. He's weeds. talking about. He's talking about immorality. He's right. talking about. So, th- th- and this is a very important section within a book. The entire. If there is one theme that defines First Corinthians, is that it, it's that the Corinthian Christians, the believers in Corinth, not bro- the broader society, is is crazy. They're decadent and immoral and sinful. I mean, they're the worst of the worst in the ancient Roman world. The Corinthians were the worst. <laughs> Everybody understood that. Yeah. Their name was a slander that you could use against somebody. To I mean, Corinthianize. Terrible. Yeah. Or to call someone a Corinthian. A Corinthian girl was the worst insult you could give a girl. They, they were not good. Which is different than Galway girl. <laughs> different than Galway girl, yeah. Um, but the problem that Paul has in Corinth and the reason these letters are written are not because society is in sin. That's par for the course. Paul expects that. We should all expect that to a certain degree. The problem is that the sin has seeped um, headlong into the church, and there's lots of problems. So just before this, Paul has actually excommunicated someone for a really, really severe act of sexual immorality with a family member, and it's, it's really messed up. And he calls this out, and he says, you guys are prideful, and you're full of yourselves and big-headed while this stuff is literally happening in your midst. You should be mourning over the state of sin in the church because it is seeped so deeply. It, it appears, Paul seems to think, the sin in the church is almost worse than it is in the broader society. Which, again, the fact that the broader society is in sin, that shouldn't surprise us. The fact of how bad it becomes in the church, that is really problematic because then the work of the church of evangelization is compromised. We can't do it if we're no better than the people that we're trying to spread a message of hope. If we're as hopeless as the world we're trying to give hope to, then we've got nothing. And so Paul is saying that this is working itself out in this particular sexual immorality, quite frankly. And what he's saying here takes the form of what's called a diatribe, which is not like he's ranting, but a diatribe in the ancient rhetorical, rhetorical, rhetorical is way more favorable in my eyes. Ironically, I just made up a word called rhetorical, rhetorical, but it's the it's the sense of a back and forth. And this is first Corinthians is. I think one of Paul's most confusing books, but it's also the book where Paul is misrepresented most because he takes the form of diatribe in much of the book where basically he will quote something that the Corinthians said and then he will refute it and show why that's wrong. But if you don't realize he's doing that, it looks like Paul is saying things that he's not saying. Does that make sense? Yep. So this is a great example. So basically what's being said, I I had to turn to my Richard Hayes who just did an expert job of unpacking this cool yeah i I like me richard hayes but he he puts this diatribe basically in a pretty pretty clear form but basically the argument is what's that book it's his commentary on first corinthians good job it's literally called first corinthians interpretation (laughs) yeah well that's the series oh it's the interpretation that's a a very clear interpretation (laughs) first corinthians there was a there was a uh a um uh, what is it called? A dust jacket that's been long since lost. I don't like dust jackets. I don't know why. Apparently, I don't either. So but basically, what they're saying in the broader conversation, we're just getting a snippet, is 
they're saying, look, Paul, all things are lawful for us. All things are okay. Because Paul basically, he was the one that championed the fact that in Christ, we are free. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. Like we're all equal. We all have this freedom and this liberty in Christ. And so they're saying, hey, everything is okay for me. If that's true, all I have a right. This is a book about rights. This is a book about what I have the right to do because I am free. And Paul says, fine. All things are lawful. Not all things are beneficial. And they say, well, all things are lawful to me. And Paul repeats, but I will not be dominated by anything. And you should not be dominated by anything. And they say, food is meant for the stomach. Basically, what happens outside of our body is it's exterior. I can eat what I want. I can do what I want with my body. It's all exterior stuff. And Paul says the body was meant not for these bad immorality things, but for the Lord. And they say, well, the stomach is made for food. And he says, no, the Lord is made for the body. And it, they say, God will destroy the body and we will die. And he says, you're forgetting that you will also be raised and the Lord will raise you by his power. So therefore, if you are making this argument, which they appear to be doing, that because we're free in Christ, it doesn't really matter what we do. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. He says, you've misunderstood everything. And instead of arguing against their rights that they say, well, we're free to do whatever we want to, he says, no, um, what does he say? Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body. That's what they are saying. That's not Paul's words. They're like, it doesn't matter. It's all outside. The immoral person sins against his own body. Why does it matter what we do with our bodies? Why does it matter how we treat these things? Number one, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit, which was an unprecedented notion when Paul actually says it. There is one temple. <laughs> Richard Hayes is not a Catholic, who I, I respect him profoundly. But he was actually saying that without a sort of localized, very specific, tangible understanding of temple, of tabernacle, of God's physical presence, it's really hard to make sense of this passage. Mm. And I was thinking, good thing we're Catholics because we actually have the tangible sense of temple and tabernacle of God. And so Paul's saying, yeah, you're that. And so how you would treat the tabernacle, how you would treat the temple, that's actually how you ought to treat yourself. Not because if you act right, you'll get the Holy Spirit, but because you've already been given the Holy Spirit. These are baptized Christians. You have the Holy Spirit, so it matters what you do. And it matters what you do also because you are not your own. And what Richard Hayes goes on for another chapter to basically just let loose on is imagine what the Christian world would look like if we stopped use, if we stopped describing our theology in terms of political platitudes, that I have the right to do this, you don't have the right to do that, you know, this and that, um, you know, from, from every sort of moral question, and we framed it all as, no, it matters because we belong to God. Right to life, right to abortion, all these things. Yes, those are good and those are helpful, but... Well, I mean, one of them is good. Well, yeah, I'm sorry, but language, saying we have a right to life, yes, that's all helpful, but... It's because we are gods. We belong to God. And that doesn't change the political secular realm. But Christians need right. to understand what we are saying when we go out in the world. It ma- everything matters because, number one, we are gods. We belong to God. Well, that's, that's this and experience that, that I know uh, of, of what recollection is. Mm. So like being, living in a recollected way is to go into the center and to say, I will only come and act out of this belonging to Godness that is right. 
at the center of my being as right. as one who has been baptized, right. washed, initiated, right. who worships, who's who has become one who is made for worship in the center of being. That is a temple purpose. of the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So firstly, that's what like yeah. that's what you were that's what you're saying. And I'm like, yeah, that yeah. so so when we say let's let's live in a recollected way, that's very practical. Go into the inner sense, enter the inner court of your being where the cosmos exists, where paradise exists, and we walk with the Lord in the cool of the evening. Yes, you were just, you were just, we were just talking about this, right. the, your calligraphy, poetry. Yeah, I wrote that in some calligraphy. But talking about that this is par- Eden, paradise, the temple really does exist within us. Yes. And we ought to act like it. That's what the world ought to see when they look like, when they look at us. Right. And then once we recognize that, that should affect how we interact with everybody else, because our goal, the singular goal of Christians is to go to heaven and bring everyone else with us. And if that's not the singular goal, then I'm not sure what we're doing. But we can't do that if we don't recognize I am God's. I belong to Jesus Christ and everything I do reflects that. Which is what Samuel, recollection, attentiveness, I call it attentiveness, but this is what Samuel is doing. This is why Samuel is the foundation for all these readings. He is recollected. Or he's learning to. He's attentive, and his attentiveness is teaching him to be recollected. Absolutely. Would that be Would that be safe to say? I would say, say that's safe. I was trying to think of how to connect those two. Right, and that's uh, and that's just it's absolutely wonderful, and I think that's essential for right now. And it's a perfect segue to John, I think. Well, tell me why you think it is. Because G. Well, um, <laughs> I. Mainly, I'm just trying to get us there, but but, but it is because it, I know I, I do some of the same. I did not, you, did. you know you know that, that felt like that moment at the end of mass when I when I'm kind of feeling like a little bit punkety as a priest, and uh, and somebody comes out and they're like, "Father, that was a wonderful homily," and you're like, "Well, what did you like?" Oh, in that's that? the worst. Do you do that to people? No, I mean when I'm feeling kind of punkety, you know, it's gonna be the right person. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like you, there's a certain vibe where oh. you're like, you know, like I'm gonna actually ask you. Quote me verbatim what you thought was the best line. Yeah, yeah, like, like uh, yeah, yeah. What was the point of my homily? You're like, oh, <laughs> you're like, I didn't expect a quiz. I just wanted to say thank you for giving yourself in the temple. That's the best. I know that's that makes what, me so that's happy. what it felt like when I just did that to you. But it, but it is true. It is a good segue because that's what Jesus, of course. But John the Baptizer is also actually leading us into the next step of what Samuel is doing. Mm. He's a better version of Eli. Because what does Eli do? What, what's Eli's entire purpose in this story? Teaching someone how to be attentive to the voice of the Lord. What's John's state, state, self-stated purpose in life? To decrease so that he may increase. To point others to the attentiveness and to following Jesus Christ. And it's so cool. To see. To see. Okay. But, yes. Okay. I, I got some things. Okay. I, I got to launch in. Okay. Go for it. Okay. Structurally, we're in the we're in the first part of the Gospel of John. We're in the first chapter yeah. of the Gospel of John. And if you've never learned this before, this is so helpful. We're um, he's imi- re- reiterating the days of creation in grace. Yeah, yeah. So what happens is that it says the next day, the next day. Then so in the beginning, well, he already set you up for the, in the first line when he said in the beginning in was the, the word. Right. In the so beginning. he already wants you thinking about Genesis creation. Right. And then you have next day, next day, next yeah, day, yeah, yeah. and then and then on the third day. So we have four. We have four days. So we have. In the beginning, the next day, the next day, the next day, and then in three days we have the wedding feast the wedding of Canaan. Canaan yeah. So, which would make it the seventh day. Of seventh course. day. So this one, we're <clears throat> in the fourth day. Yeah. Okay. Do you remember what was made on the fourth day? 
uh, uh, the, s- the sun, the stars, and the luminaries. Absolutely. You tried to trick me. You thought I wasn't going to. I was. Uh, <laughs> Come on, man. Come on. You've done it to me so many times. <laughs> all, all the time. And then I like. I hate that I, it back. Dude, it's it's like as a priest, somebody <laughs> like comes comes to confession, and they're like, they're like, I sinned against the seventh commandment, and I'm like. So like I started the first one and I'm like, I'm like trying to count on my fingers. It's terrible. I should know this by now, but I'm, I'm bad at addresses. It's probably someone who you asked to name their favorite part of the homily previously. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, father. Yeah, like, I can do I play, can this, play game. this game. Um, you know, <laughs> I didn't respond well to the eight, to the, to the sixth gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, it's like liturgical battleship. Just trying to. <laughs> That's the name of the episode right there, dude. Liturgical battle. Oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. It might I don't be. Know. Okay. okay. So um so we're in the fourth day. day. So so sun and the moon and the luminaries. Yep. Okay. What are the, all of those what are, what's essentially what's the essential component of those three things? Light. Light. I got it right. Absolutely. I'm two for two, baby. Absolutely. You dude, you're doing so good. Look at me going all like I'm two for three. You asked me one I couldn't answer earlier. Okay. Uh, that's okay. Okay, so the, the next day, John is standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he says, behold. It's Jesus. Yeah. Are you asking me? Behold. Three for three. No, yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> Ask me another. Yeah. No, no. Well, behold, what does beholding involve? Looking. Seeing. Looking. Light. Seeing. Absolutely. Eyes. Right. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so it was liturgical jeopardy Did, now. W- what was it like to have you in class? What, what kind of student were you? Oh, terrible. <laughs> oh, I was the worst student ever. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> but you're a great you, teacher. You wouldn't believe how amazed and surprised my parents were that I got a PhD. You, you're doing what now? Because <laughs> you were the worst. Okay, anyway. <laughs> I just I just had this feeling of having you in my class, and I was, I was like, worst. I was like, oh my gosh, you are no wonder you're a good teacher because you can spot them coming from a mile. No, I was not. I was not what I'm being now. I was not Hermione Granger in class. That's not. Oh, that was okay. not me. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so beholding involves light. Okay, so we're talking about yes. Hannah and Samuel. Mm. We're talking about how they're in an in iconography of Mary and Jesus, and we have John, and who's pointing out who the sun. So the sun and the moon were created on the fourth day and the luminaries in the sky. So what we're seeing is this Mm. beautiful example, because he's being explicit about recreating these expressions. John is, you mean. John, yeah. yeah. So, so John, the gospel writer, not John the Baptist, to clarify. (laughs) Baptizer. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So, um. So here he is, and so we see the sun and the moon, mm. and then the luminaries. And the luminaries, whenever you say stars of the sky and heaven, who do you think of? Abraham. Mary. Oh. <laughs> I thought of Mary, Revelation. Mary, crown oh, Revelation. Of oh, crown of 12 stars. What's up now? Oh, boom, that's that's even better than what I well, was thinking. We were already thinking. talking about Mary. Right, so the crown of 12 stars around her. So we actually have Mary as the moon, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Which does actually go back to Abraham, right. out of which came Israel, which are what the 12 stars over Mary's head represent. So it all is full Right, and here. so then the, the, those <coughs> some of the stars appear with the sun and implied with the, the moon. the apostles? Apostles, uh, absolutely. Twelve, the twelve, Israel. Yeah. right? Exactly. Mm. And 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 they go, and Jesus is like, "What are you looking for?" So mm. again, pay attention to the the idea what of what are you be- looking? For? Yeah, yeah. Behold sight, and he says, come. "He didn't just say, what do you want?'" Right. Come <laughs> and come and see.' He's like, actually, 
Oh, hold on. Okay, oh, talk on. To You me. missed the most important part. Talk to not me. the it's... most important. That's hyperbole. <laughs> that's not what he answers. Or that's not what they answer, though. What do they say? He said, what are you looking for? And they say what? Where are you staying? Which means, where are you lodging? Where are you sleeping? Where are you dwelling? <sighs> oh. I mean, we're, now we're full-bodied imagery back to Samuel. Right. Who dwells. Where Where are you tab? I'd have to look at the Greek, but I, I assume it says, where are you tabernacling? Maybe it, maybe it's not. Right. Um, John says that earlier. The word became flesh and tabernacle among us. Mm. But, but the dwelling, where are you staying? Where are you sleeping? Where are you going to be so that we can be attentive to you? They don't even fully know what they're asking for yet. They just know we want to be present to this guy. I don't think they know that he is God. You, you actually have in this whole section, you have a progression of titles for Jesus. Do you notice that? So first he's called rabbi. Then he's called Messiah, the anointed one. And then right after this, Nathaniel calls him son of God. So you have a progression of titles that are being given because there is an increase of attentiveness and understanding to what's being revealed to them, which reminds me of Samuel and the threefold, you know, calling to him okay hold on i think i might be wrong okay i just looked and because what because there's a next day after this one yeah which i don't know what day we're on um so that's the question so we have so we (laughs) first day first day is the creation next day is so verse 29 is the second day verse 35 is the third day yeah so verse 43 is the fourth day yeah so yeah so Sorry. I, I so all of my and theories just got trashed. Two. So no, they didn't. So it's dry ground well, no, and you're, plants. You're, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so so now I have to it's work all the, plants. I now. have to I have to work on this, which is no in, because John, you're 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 being a little too strict with John's imagery. Am I being a little Roman about this all? Should I be a little bit more Eastern? It's because you formed in the Novus Ordo. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, John is clear. I, I say that you're not wrong. I'm not willing to let what you said go because John is clearly using the imagery of seeing and light and dark. That, right. I mean, that's right. even though yes, day four was the day that he played creates the plants and the, <laughs> the right. dry land. Right. Fine, <sighs> but he is using the imagery of light. I mean, the imagery of light pervades the entire first chapter of John. Absolutely, you're so generous and nice to me. But it's true. It it's, is true. It is true. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep holding on to that because I was I, actually I, looking. John, John, the thing I I get profoundly frustrated by John about is that he he doesn't always follow strict parameters and i have a hard time following him sometimes because he does leap parameters sometimes so yes we're on day four technically but he's still talking about light and dark right which are both true right and 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 jesus ultimately he comes and he says you know uh, it, it's it's almost like jesus is being a true high priest they they have this thing like like as samuel went to eli mm-hmm. they are going to jesus and and so Jesus says, "Come and see." So and so present well, yourselves. Present yourselves. Can I tweak the analogy? Nope. Of course you can. And this is where again, this is where categories are breaking down a little. So I'm just th- I'm thinking out loud here. Okay, okay. They're not strictly speaking going straight to Jesus. Okay. They're going to John. What is John doing? He's saying over there, which tells us more about what the high priest, even in the Old Testament, was supposed to be than anything else. If John is sort of the new Eli, so to speak, even though he's not a priest per se. Right, right. It tells us, though, what's Eli. And and this is what Eli, at the end of the day, eventually does for Samuel. Hold on. His point away from himself to God. John the Baptist is the son of who? Zechariah. Zechariah. Of course, Zechariah. The priest. So in the same way that Elizabeth. 
Elizabeth. Elizabeth. I like it. Well, I what, no, I like that. But but then what was so Samuel uttered a prophecy against the children of Eli and the Ooh, family of Eli. Now something. And now John, the son of the priest, is actually doing what uh, the son of the priest should be doing. These guys were lazy punks and they invoked the curse, whereas yeah. he is actually active and living out of something that's yes. raw, pointing out what he should be doing. Being what they ought to have been. Right. Even though he's not a priest. But he is priestly, though. I mean, uh, that, that's not fair because he's from the priestly line. Of course he is. Right. Tech Ryan Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he is actually a priest. And his mom is from the line of the high priest. Well, Elizabeth's from the line of Aaron. What? So again, it's it's not perfect, but there's a lot of this imagery that's kind of coming together. But and and, and so mm. a, as the prophecy, almost mm. as if Samuel was the adopted new priestly son. He, oh, right. Oh my. So keep, keep going. So I, I, so, I, so <laughs> you're going he, somewhere, and I like so, it. Right. So like God actually called in and like <coughs> used the Excuse prayer me. of Hannah and yes. and had this auxiliary to come in to call down and to say, you know, what you didn't do what you're supposed to do. Mm, yeah. Now we actually have a real priestly line that's doing what they should be doing and what comes, but the but the the truth and the reconciliation that's actually meant to take place. And the the downside of it, for our purposes. Yep. Is that sometimes you have to wait a really, really long time for God to work that all out. <laughs> right? But uh, there's something kind of beautiful about that. Right. Because then there, there is really the reminder, and I keep thinking about this in terms of the Psalms, there is really the reminder that for God, one day is like a thousand years. Right. It, it's okay, and God has the long game in mind. It's like we come back to Second Corinthians and we realize that actually that dude who they commended to Satan repented. We and hope so. Yeah, I mean, you can. It's it's implied in the it's implied in Second Corinthians. I was just going through it. It's implied that that's the goal, right? That's the intent, right? Right. Well, so, no, that's in First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. Oh, in Second Corinthians. Oh, so, oh, oh, oh. Sorry. What, yes. what I'm saying is, in First Corinthians, he says we're yeah. going to do this. In Second Corinthians, the church actually repents and goes and and experiences transformation, and and yes, it took a long time. Hmm. And it was a really complicated way for the, for <laughs> things to, to actually out. ultimately get get worked out, and that's yeah. and but that yeah. because of that difficulty, beautiful things ends up coming end up yes. coming out. Yeah, yeah. Just well, like day four, when beautiful things come out of the earth, like the plants and stuff. <laughs> that's day three. Sorry, day three. Is oh, plans. day three. I'm in. <laughs> day four. We got the sun and the moon and stars. Yeah, day which three. is which is like my my. Actually, I have this avocado tree and a lime tree. And they haven't seen light in a while, so I so I think that that I think that day three and four, as far as things go, they were you know like you can't really plant without the sun and the moon. You can't it's have pre- day three without day four, baby. That's what I'm saying, y'all. Yeah, that's true. Maybe that should be the title of the podcast. Now that's a weird title. <laughs> they're like they're like these guys have their titles have fallen off in a way that was unexpected. No, shoot. <laughs> the the, we the just, working title was We All Want to Be Chesterton, but we're probably Eli. That was what was meant. <laughs> well, you guys, um, I, uh, I'm i so thankful again that you guys uh, were able to join us and that we yes. were able to to, to start a, a, a new moment in ordinary. We were in ordinary time for a few weeks and then we head on yeah. out. Yeah, we do. Well, for a while. We're here for a while, right? Oh, no, because Lent. Lent, Lent begins pretty soon. Yeah, it's like February, like Valentine's Day. So get growing. Get green. 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 Liturgical. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We will be back next week. We'll don't, see you then. Don't fake the funk. Never. Bye. 
The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Uh, that is the way that we can grow and get the word out to more people. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.